Right, uh, good evening everybody and good evening up there. Um, welcome to the London School of Economics. Fantastic turnout. Thank you so much uh, for coming along this evening. My name is Neve Maloney. I'm from the Law Department at the London School of Economics and it's a huge pleasure uh, to invite you to have you here this evening for this event and an even greater pleasure uh, to be chairing such a fantastic and timely topic. So we're at an LSE Law Department public event on leaving the EU and of course uh, another way of describing that is Brexit which is uh, appearing in the media very frequently and in the great tradition of LSE public events we are debating one of the questions of the hour. Uh, on an hourly basis we're now hearing about a potential Brexit but our question is no less important but much closer to home. Um, is the UK going to leave the UK? going to leave the EU. There are hugely important political, economic, uh, sociological questions arising from this, but our problems, our questions this evening um, are legal ones. And whatever the outcome of the election, and as we know, David Cameron has promised a referendum by the end of 2017, whatever the outcome of that, there are fundamental and pressing questions about the UK's place um, in the EU and the legal ramifications of that. So many questions. What about the single market? 28 member states, 500 million people, a hugely sophisticated legal regime. Can that be replicated? Will it change? What would happen if the UK left the EU? What about the very many laws we take completely for granted but have their roots deep in the EU project? Will they be untangled? Will they be unpicked? What will happen to them? And what about the non-English UK? What about Scotland if the UK leaves the EU? Some of these issues were rehearsed last September. There are many, many more issues to debate if the UK does leave the EU. So very big questions, very timely questions. We have a very distinguished um, LSE law panel to debate them tonight. But first, I must emphasise, much of this night belongs to you. So the format we have is 10 minutes or so from our panel, after which we'll open the floor to questions uh, and comments, including questions and comments via Twitter, and I think our hashtag is up there. We'll aim to finish shortly before 8 o'clock or so, we'll see how we go uh, on the discussion section. But now let me start our proceedings by introducing our panellists, and I'll do so in the order in which they'll speak, and they're, they're sitting in that order. Um, first of all, Damien Chalmers, our Professor of EU Law here in the Law Department. And his recent Open Europe report, many of you may have come across, a uh, very important, very uh, exciting dissection of the EU labour market and how welfare benefits are received. Received a huge amount of policy, media and political attention just a few months ago. Second, we have Dr. Jan Komarak, also from the Law Department, another expert in EU law. And very recently, uh, Jan's work was cited in what was probably one of the most eagerly awaited and closely followed opinions of the Advocate General of the Court of Justice. And this was the opinion on the European Central Bank's bond buying programme. Or in other words, what the ECB has been doing to do everything it takes to save the euro. Thirdly, we have Dr. Joe Merkins, also of the Law Department, an EU specialist, but also a UK public lawyer. And Joe's expert opinion on Scottish independence, including its impact on EU membership, was widely sought 
over the independence and referendum campaign in the last few months. You probably saw him on the BBC at some point uh, at that point. <laughs> and finally, it's a huge pleasure to have with us this evening our Emeritus Professor, Carl Harlow, uh, a leading authority on EU and public law, and particularly the legal and political accountability of the EU. Her many awards are really far too numerous to mention, but include Fellow of the British Academy, an honorary QC, and also a Fellow here of the London School of Economics. So just before we start, can I remind you the event is being recorded. There will hopefully be a podcast available afterwards. And can you please put your mobile on silent? But of course, feel free to tweet as we go through. So without further ado, I'll turn our discussion over to Damien. Thank, thank you very much, Neve. Right. Um, one of the so-called beauties of referendum, whether uh, it happens in 2017 or in my view more likely in 2022, is they're supposed to put the people in charge. And what I want to try and persuade you, well, over the next nine and a half minutes, is the worst, if you go to Westminster, they say the worst thing that is possible is to put the don't knows in charge. I would urge you all, if possible, to say I don't know about whether the UK should be in or out of the EU for as long as possible. And I'll say this for three reasons. First of all, it'd be more fun. Um, the second is, and the possibly slightly more serious one, is the alternatives about what either membership of the European Union means in a few years' time, or a future outside the European Union, will not be clear for a long time to come. So it's very clear to know quite what one's choosing. And the third thing, and I believe this quite strongly is that you can actually bargain this up, or we can bargain this up as British citizens, the longer you say, don't know. So, why don't know? Well, to make a case for don't know, you first of all have to say the EU's done something for us. There must be something prima facie beneficial about it. And I had a look online, and The Guardian came up with a couple of things lamp bulbs and uh, the EU media programme of which uh, the UK got about £80 million pounds. This is, uh, to, to finance films which didn't seem too exciting to me now if I was to make a case about benefits we've obtained from the EU law I'll start here and these are just a few many of us are alive today only because of the EU in the sense that it allowed it gave pregnant women protection against discrimin uh, discrimination and therefore allowed many working women to have babies that they could otherwise not have afforded. <laughs> if you think that's a bit too, <laughs> too liberal and PC, we have, and if you want something a bit more Jeremy Clarkson-ish, we have the fastest, safest cars in the world because of the whole vehicle type approval system here in the EU. If you don't like Jeremy Clarkson, we have better air, particularly here in Kingsway, it used to be awful because of the EU ambient quality directive outside that means you can now breathe in Kingsway where you couldn't before that. If you find all that a bit too much and just want to walk up to Sainsbury's, Sainsbury's now, the average Sainsbury's has about 30,000 products. The one probably at Hoban has about 20,000, largely because the EU got rid of recipe laws allowing us to have a more diverse diet and also a safer diet. We had far more... Far, far, much, far higher levels of food poisoning in the 70s and 80s before EU food safety regimes came in. 
And if you thought, well, he wanted to get away from Kingsway and wanted to go and look at Waterloo Sunset, I think when it was originally drafted that song, there was a bit of irony. The Thames was a, a fetid sewer. The redevelopment of the Thames has only been possible largely because of the, what was then the Fresh Water Directive that cleaned, cleaned it up. And if you want to get away from London, we only have EasyJet, um, Ryanair, because of transport liberalisation. And if you want the world to come to London, we largely have the Premier League because of EU competition. So you can make a lot of benefits. For me, I've been allowed to get married because of EU law, because I'm married to an Italian Argentinian. However, even if you thought all those things were good and the EU had not done anything dodgy, to my mind, it would not necessarily make a case for voting yes to EU membership. And the reason for that, and this is the second part of my argument, is that the EU has weak democratic authority. And I better just say what I mean by democratic authority. It's not the same as democracy. Democratic authority means that the democratic credentials of a system, the fact that this is democratic, gives us reason to obey its laws. So democracy is a reason for us obeying the laws. And in my view, the EU is probably about as democratic as it ever could be. But I think very few people think it has stronger democratic authority than national parliaments or national democratic processes. And every case EU law is applied, it might have transnational effects, but it also has domestic effects that affect someone in an exclusively domestic way. And so you have a situation, in all cases, where a law with weaker democratic authority is prevailing over a law which I would argue has stronger democratic authority. And this leads to a number of problems. First of all, it's very alienating for all those that lose from this, uh, and all those that may just not agree that EU law is a, a good thing. They are having to be ruled by something they don't really believe in, or something that they support less than a law they would support. Secondly, it leads to democratic atrophy. All the laws and examples I gave you were not because of popular mobilisation. They were because of benign administrative and elite engagement. We don't have strong popular contestation about any of these laws. And that's, you might think, problematic, particularly as, if you look at the various statistics, between about 14 and 20% of our laws in a crude way are directly governed by the EU. Thirdly, this, demo- this weak democratic engagement has spillover effects. Take UK labour law. The EU only marginally engages industrial relations, in my view, here in the UK. But we've got into a situation where we think, well, because labour laws governed largely by the EU, we won't have much to do with it. So we have this so-called benign EU social policy in a world of zero-hour contracts and relatively weak political engagement about it. And this has led to other consequences. It has led to the growth of populism and to declining faith in political institutions across Europe. The decline, if one sees the polls in Eurobarometer, you find a paralleling off of lowering trust and lowering faith in EU institutions and domestic institutions. The EU institutions seem to stop domestic institutions doing things, so citizens are less impressed by both. And finally, even if I liked all these things of the EU, I'm not sure I'm completely comfortable about living in a world where we're governed by bankers, civil servants and judges, and politicians have become taken on the role as administrators of budgets for hospitals and schools, and that is largely all I vote for. 
So that is why I think you could have a strong case, and if you like what the EU did, where you'd have some misgivings. Well, that's fine, but if you leave the EU, do you regain democratic authority? And here's the problem, because it's not clear you do. The European Economic Area is largely governed by administrators, and it it applies all the same laws as we apply, with the exception of agriculture, fisheries, and external trade. If you look at Switzerland, the Swiss Parliament spends one-third of its time implementing EU laws. Of that number, 24%, so not 24% of a third, two-thirds of that third, is not because of the 100 conventions they have with the EU, but just because they think they have to do it. Many multinationals around the world apply EU law irrespective of what their voters think. And we have the problem we have to manage our legacy of EU law, which means we're more inclined to have to obey it no matter what. So just leaving doesn't necessarily regain democratic authority. And this is why I say hold, see what is, what is an offer. And in the remaining two minutes, I'll give a couple of suggestions. First of all, there are two false arguments. One argument is a false argument for in, and it says, well, we'd follow this anyway. Well, if you'd follow it anyway, then there's no reason to be part of the EU. That was going to be your choice, so why be subject to the constraints of the EU? The second argument is, well, it's naturally more democratic to leave the EU. You might have weak democratic authority. It doesn't mean that democracy would be improved by leaving the EU. First of all, we have the... We have to see how we manage the adjustment. The government's process so far has been to hand it over to civil servants. So instead of being ruled by the EU, you'd be ruled by Whitehall. <coughs> Secondly, many of the things the EU <coughs> governs are not well, historically not well treated by majoritarian institutions. Future interests in financial services or the environment, diffuse interests like consumers, minor- minority groups, and there'll be a question mark about how we govern these things in the future. So the the democratic argument is not self-evident, to me at least, that leaving makes us more democratic. Now, what would I suggest should be the three tests in how I would at least decide whether in or out allows us democratic authority? And I would assess, say, first one. Is the EU fit for purpose? What the EU is basically is a regulatory machine that used outdated regulatory techniques, lots of rulemaking to regulate, but they gave us a huge competitive advantage because the world adopted them as the rules for international trade. They've got so good at adopting those rules, the rest of the world, that that regulatory advantage doesn't exist anymore. So the EU (coughs) is spending a lot of time agonising about how to change its regulatory system. Secondly, this goes a little bit to democratic authority, political ownership. My own view is that national parliaments should have to say yes to EU laws and there should be the possibility for national parliaments to defect from EU law in certain structured circumstances and possibly for citizens' initiatives to reclaim that sense of democratic ownership, political ownership over the process. Largely, by the way, what happens in Norway... Uh, well, some parts of it happen in Norway, I'll explain that in questions and answers, and they somehow seem to apply most EU law. Thirdly, and this is about the paper that Neve mentioned, 
Questions of political community. At the moment, we give significant rights to the mobile, at least mobile EU citizens, at the expense of the immobile. The rights we give to nationals from other EU member states, they're not to the poorest nationals. They're not to the most marginalised in Romania. And the EU is very good at about saying what advantages and opportunities should be given to the mobile, those that are risk-taking. They've had relatively little to say about the engagement with the immobile. And if you look at a lot of the discourse at the moment in the British election, it's very much it's about living, uh, what Labour calls the standard of living crisis, or what UKIP calls about reclaiming our country. It's largely a discourse, maybe a distorted one, of national citizenship. And one of the things I think has to be thought about a little bit more is the relationship between a transnational citizenship and a national citizenship. And that means each engaging with the other has not really happened so far. We've left it to the marketplace to sort this out. And I would want something on that, whether we're in or out. I will stop there. Fantastic, Damien. I mean, Tesco, the Premier League, and right down into the very big questions. Cracking start. Uh, Jan, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. And uh, when I got this invitation, I was really struggling because I knew I would be uh, talking together with Damien and what can one say about uh, the British exit after Damien was uh, speaking. But I try, uh, at least. And uh, for sure, I won't speak from the British perspective because obviously I'm not the British citizen, or you can't know that I'm the British citizen, but you can hear that I'm not from here. So I will try to speak from the European perspective. But then that gets quite difficult, right? Because what's Europe and what would be the European perspective? Because you can always say, when people mention Europe and the European common good and European interests, they always mean their own interests. But I'll try. And uh, I will try to uh, discuss what the debate in Britain on its possible exit can mean for the European Union. And I think I would also mention that there is an important difference that, in fact, Britain is not going to vote on yes to European integration because Britain is already in the European Union. And I will explain why it makes an important difference that the vote will be on a no and not on whether the UK is going to join uh, the European Union. Now, the difficulty of speaking about the European interest or the European common good or the European perspective is, of course, that Europe can mean many different things to many people. And the uh, debates on different political events or political uh, proposals in the course of the European integration illustrate uh, this well. So the, well, I think some people would think young people in the audience, but from my perspective, all the people in the audience, because we also have uh, some students, would remember that uh, the debate on the Constitutional Treaty, uh, which now would celebrate its 10th anniversary when uh, the treaty was buried, at that time, Europe meant for some people that it's uh, the end of the free market and the coming of uh, the socialist dream, and that could possibly be uh, part of the people in this country, whereas in France, it meant the end of socialism and the end of plant economy. And how do you explain that? With one single treaty. And if I was to talk from a more loyally perspective, and I'm not sure if I can do that, but uh, in media, there was also a judgment of the Court of Justice, which was quite popular, and that was on the right to strike. That's how the judgment was portrayed here in the UK, that the European Court of Justice decided that uh, the laborers across Europe has the right to strike, which, of course, doesn't exist in British labor law. 
that's one uh, possible view of the judgment. Whereas if you asked people in Germany or in Sweden where the judgment was or the country which the judgment concerned, then it meant the end of social Europe. So again, how can you explain these two different perspectives on the same event? In one uh, occasion, it was the Constitutional Treaty. At another, it was a judgment of the European Court of Justice. And the explanation is precisely that these things simply mean different things to different people. Now, I don't want to get too relativistic about this. So what I want to say is that what Europe offers is a framework in which this can be somewhat mediated, debated, and uh, discussed. And that's what's the Europe's greatest, uh, greatest uh, achievement. Now, how does the issue of British exit relate to this? I think this framework, as I mentioned, is an achievement. And the fact that uh, simply it's not possible, at least uh, not always, to talk uh, from the perspective of the national interest, but that you have to use this as some people call it, civilized hypocrisy, that you can't say, you know, this is in our national interest, but you have to at least pretend that you are speaking from the European perspective, has uh, some uh, influence on the outcomes uh, you can get within uh, this uh, framework. And I'm afraid that we tend to think that this framework is more stable than it actually is, and uh, that, in fact, once you get the talk about the uh, possibility of exiting from the European Union because it no more serves your national interest, then you just undermine this framework and also the achievement on which it is based. So uh, the fact that uh, people started to think in terms of Europe rather than their own national interest. And I know that this may sound too idealistic, perhaps, but uh, I think... Uh, that's what one can say if, the, if uh, one doesn't want to stick the particularistic perspective of uh, one on another uh, countries. Because you may say many things on the European Union, but I'm aware uh, also from talking with my colleagues here at the LSE that they won't, in fact, uh, be important for people who are going to vote in the referendum if the referendum uh, takes place. But just from the perspective of that part of Europe I come from, which is uh, Central and Eastern Europe, for people there, being in Europe means things which are quite important and which can have at least indirectly influence the United Kingdom's uh, place in Europe and in the world. And of course what I mean is that uh, by being a member of the European Union simply guarantees you that you are freed from uh, your big brother in the East. And that's now, I think, quite well illustrated by the current events in Ukraine and in Russia. Now, of course, I understand that people here can simply ask, so why should we bother? Because it's the east of uh, Europe and we are on the opposite side of the continent. But I think uh, people here also know quite well that whenever these uh, events evolved uh, on the continent, it then influenced uh, Britain as well. But uh, that's, I think, not the most important thing to say on uh, the referendum and the questions which would be raised. I think what I had, and I think I could be quite short with my presentation, but at least uh, we will get more for uh, the debate, is this sense that people should be aware that the question in the referendum is not do we want to be the members of the European Union, because the UK is already a member of the European Union, but the question rather is, are we going to say no to the European Union 
to these achievements in the European Union and the framework which is built on uh, this achievement. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jana. A great reminder of what it is we're trying to grapple with. What is the EU? What do we mean by it? And taking us further on to this discussion is Joe. The floor is yours. Thank you, and good evening. Uh, my speech comes in two parts. Um, the first one is the easy part, and then I'll move on to the second one, but both are going to be very brief. It's election time, which is a bit like Christmas time, where politicians make all sorts of promises that they don't have to keep necessarily. A referendum has been on the Conservative rights wish list for a good number of years, if not decades, and it's in the past few years that David Cameron has promised such a referendum, as we heard from Professor Chalmers um, in 2017, provided that he wins an absolute majority in May this year, um, which is uh, currently unrealistic. Um, but it is easily forgotten in, this, uh, in the United Kingdom that the, Euro- that the European Union is both a political project based around peace Um, stability and cooperation and prosperity, um, as well as a free trade area with a market and with a currency. It's not surprising that UK politicians generally regard the European Union as an economic entity and assess membership in terms of a cost-benefit analysis. What I do find surprising is that even pro-European politicians in this country regard um, regard the European Union as an economic entity. Not all relationships can be reduced to numbers. And let's look at what the European Union is currently doing. If we look at the sovereign debt crisis in Greece, if we look at youth unemployment in the Mediterranean, or the situation in eastern Ukraine, these situations have put political questions centre stage again. The EU sanctions against Russia follow a security rationale, not an economic rationale. And although the debt crisis can be understood in the, language, uh, in the languages of uh, banks, debts, um, uh, and obligations, and deficits, it is the political argument and the political narrative which is much more important. Now, I'm not the only one to have noticed that Britain is absent on the world stage. The Economist last Friday has a leader, uh, the Observer, on Sunday um, wrote about this a lot. The world press has been decrying Britain's absence on the world stage for the past year. At best, it has no clear strategy when it comes to foreign policy. At worst, the policy of the current coalition government is callously indifferent to what goes on in Europe. The only response it knows, it's military. We saw that in Iraq, we saw that in Afghanistan, we almost saw it in relation to Syria, and we may yet see it in relation to the Ukraine. Meanwhile, European diplomacy is run by the most powerful woman in the world. And this I find bizarre. British Europhobia runs so deep that they would rather see Angela Merkel run the European diplomatic show than assist the European Union in um, in reaching a voice of its own, a collective voice. I also find it worrying from a position of a citizen that, as Damien Chalmers has noted, many of the socially prog- uh, progressive measures over the last 40 years have had, a, um, have had a European origin. I didn't know the story about Kingsway um, and its air getting better. That hasn't reached Oxford Street yet. Oxford Street has the highest concentration of nitrogen dioxide in the world. 
The UK government wanted to sort this out by 2030. Because of the Court of Justice's decision last November, it has to sort it out now. There's the Working Time Directive. The Working Time Directive reduces the average working week to 48 hours. It also guarantees paid annual leave and, and regular rest breaks, especially for night shift workers. Do you want the government to renegotiate this directive? Then there's uh, the European arrest warrant, which the government is constantly flip-flopping on, but it's already done a good service for Britain. There's the social chapter, the Charter of Fundamental Rights, um, EU data protection laws. On every single one of these issues, the UK has either impeded it, challenged it, or opted out from it. Consider enlargement. For, for years, the government was uh, campaigning for Eastern enlargement. Wider, not deeper, European integration. And what do we see the government doing now? Campaigning for, for an immigration caps on workers from Bulgaria and Romania. In relation to the European Union, the UK's position veers from the hypocritical to the abysmal. Now, we can talk about renegotiation in the run-up to the uh, um, uh, referendum and European Union reforms, but the fact is that the UK is all, the European Union is already a project of differentiated integration, and the United Kingdom is testimony of that because of all the opt-outs that it has. Now, withdrawal at least looks like a coherent policy, but withdrawal is not a coherent policy. It is a violation of reality. It is the equivalent of building a wall around this island. In the same way that the Berlin Wall was described by those who built it as an anti-fascist, read, anti-Western, protective rampart, so the ideology, the ideology behind EU withdrawal is anti-European protectionism and isolationism. It is against internationalism, it is against supranationalism, and crucially, and again bizarrely, it is against British interests. Now what do I mean by British interests? For a country that likes to bang on about its sovereignty, the United Kingdom has no real sense of what kind of a state it is. Is it a united kingdom? If it is a united kingdom, then there will be one in-out referendum held nationally um, that will be decided on a majority of those who vote. Or are we a union of nations? Well, if that is the case, then the referendum will only be carried if a majority of voters in each of the four nations, England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, give the backing. Now, the Scottish referendum last September revealed the fragility of the United Kingdom. For a Conservative-led England to lead a Labour-led Wales and an SNP-led Scotland out of the European Union is not an incoherent suggestion. It's not a dangerous suggestion. For a unionist party like the Conservatives to even propose a referendum, which after all implies that life outside the EU would be possible, is off-the-scale stupidity. Like English votes for English laws, it is a secessionist policy that does not dice with the future of the European Union, but it will lead to the breakup of Britain. Instead of devising economic, political social and strategic policy at the lowest possible level. Little England kept together by British values, if you're lucky. 
Why not strive for rules um, that can be... Uh, why not construct policy rules that anyone can live under, whatever their nationality, sex, race, gender, beliefs, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation? Why should only rules be acceptable if they satisfy the national constitution? Why is there a domestic roof on the conditions of political legitimacy? Why not think big and go for the transnational stamp of approval from the European peoples? Now, on its own, out, on the cold, out in the cold, the UK, unfortunately, does not reveal the better angels of its nature, but the worst instincts of a fallen former imperial power. Deluded about its own greatness and duped by the promise of sovereignty, the United Kingdom will dwindle into irrelevance in desperate isolation and eventually self-destruct. I'm not quite done yet. Oh, there's more. It's, it's not apocalyptic seconds. enough. There's more to this come. Is, this is for the lighter part. Are you ready for this? Armageddon. Brace yourself. Today is not about Brexit. It's about Brexit. If Britain, if Britain had any muscle, it would flex it. If Europe's, if Europe's power grows, we need someone who checks it. Since both are broke, we need to fix it before Farage comes along and nicks it with his anti-immigration rants and then sticks it to the top of the political agenda when some editor picks it as the most important issue and no one corrects it. It's a political football and everyone kicks it. We don't need a TV debate. What if someone flicks it? We don't need a referendum. What if someone rigs it? We don't need an anthem, but we might need someone to mix it. There, I've said it. We should dread it. We need to throw political eggs. It is necessary. It has to be Farage that legs it. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you very much. It's on, Carol. Yeah. So, Carol, over to you too to close our panel discussions. Thank you. Well, for good or evil, the EU is in being, and we're part of it. And as a pragmatist, that's my starting point. And indeed, it would be a hard act to follow, Joe, if I were to take such a political line. But I was actually asked to speak as a lawyer, and that's what I'm going to do, boring though that may be. And I want, actually, to talk about something which I think has been neglected, which is the arrangements for leaving the European Union if, perchance, the UK would like to do so. Uh, the Treaty on the European Union, of course, as everyone knows, states that a member state may decide to withdraw from the Union in accordance with its constitutional requirements. So what I want to look at is what are our constitutional requirements? And those people who've been um, in the United Kingdom for some time, especially if they've studied in the LSE Law Department, will know that the, LS, that the Constitution of the UK is a curious one. 
There is no constitutional right to a referendum in the, in the United Kingdom, but there's been growing resort to referendums and um, as an alternative to the constitutional way of making change through parliamentary legislation. Indeed, uh, many constitutional lawyers see a convention as developing that the people should always be consulted in a referendum on questions of constitutional importance. And I don't think there can be any doubt that leaving the EU is a question of constitutional importance. But we need to bear in mind that referendums are advisory and not binding. And referendums are always based in the UK or have been on a specific statute which establishes the terms of reference, which is important because some of the questions that Joe was asking about referendums are, must be settled in statute law. And uh, <coughs> referendum procedure is also in the statute um, or perhaps in regulations. Either way forward, but that means that the uh, whole constitution and conduct of a referendum is a question for the government of the day and parliament. Uh, those are important points. But in 2000, and I suspect possibly due to the um, influence of the Liberal Democrats, um, parliament passed an act which laid down some ground rules for referendums. And the particular point of relevance here is that it set up the Electoral Commission and gave it some powers to supervise referendums. And um, in particular, the Electoral Commission has to consider the wording of the referendum question, which, as previous speakers have said, is an extremely important thing. If you want to win a referendum, um, experience around the world shows that you need to be the person who drafts the referendum question. And uh, the, what the Electoral Commission has to do in this country is to report on the, to Parliament on the intelligibility of the question, and that has been interpreted to mean that the meaning must be conveyed clearly, simply, and neutrally. So there is some supervision. Now, we all know that there's been one in-out referendum in the UK in 1975, and the question asked on that occasion was, do you think the United Kingdom should remain in the European communities? And we'll come back to that. There was, incidentally, a 65% turnout and 67% voted in favour. <clears throat> in addition to that, there is the possibility of referendums in terms of uh, a rather... Um, no, I'm a lawyer, so I won't comment. In terms of the European Union Act 2011, which creates the so-called referendum lock, and that applies to, to uh, uh, changes in EU competence. So it doesn't cover the EU in-out referendum, though, in my view, it might, if it ever was used, potentially trigger an EU in our referendum. Well, where are we today? In January 2013, David Cameron made his so-called Bloomberg speech, and he argued for time to negotiate a new settlement, 
that being important, in the relationship with the EU in order to offer voters a real choice. So he envisages negotiations prior to the referendum. And in May um, 2013, the Conservative Party announced a very similar plan and attached a draft um, bill to their proposals. That was followed up by the government setting up a review of the balance of competences, which is such a lengthy document that I couldn't even think of trying to read it. But fortunately, a House of Lords Select Committee is looking at it and the proceedings were televised. That was drafted by civil servants and is generally thought to be quite neutral. However, in the meantime, a Conservative MP, James Wharton, introduced a private member's bill and his European Union referendum bill passed the House of Commons and is currently stuck in the House of Lords. So Cameron has said, committed a future Conservative government if the Conservative Party wins a majority in 2015 to reintroducing the bill. And therefore we can look at the bill and we would know quite a lot about the referendum. The bill's short. It provides for a referendum to be held before the 31st of December 2017. Um, Damien suggests up that the Conservatives might not um, accept that um, that date. And the, the, importantly, it is to be held on existing parliamentary constituencies and existing parliamentary suffrage, adding Gibraltar. That would mean that Commonwealth citizens in the country, under certain conditions, could vote, but EU citizens could not vote. There's nothing in the bill about the necessary majority, which is an extremely important point because some referendums on constitutions require a two-thirds or three-quarters majority. And, importantly, the choice of parliamentary um, constituency means that we can track the regional voting pattern. And, as previous speakers said, that would be very important. The bill chooses the following question. Do you think that the United Kingdom should be a member of the European Union? But the Electoral Commission came in and recommended amendment on the grounds that that suggested we were not a member of the European Union and they thought that many members of the public believed that that was the case and didn't know that we were members of the European Union. So they offered Parliament two choices. A yes-no question, which is like the 1975 one, should the UK remain a member of the European Union, or a remain and leave question, which I think is very dodgy indeed. Should the United Kingdom remain a member of the European Union, or leave the European Union? I think it's dodgy because it's very cumbersome and it requires you to tick boxes, remain, leave, instead of the habitual yes or no. The last, uh, the further provisions would be made in a statutory instrument which would have to be approved by both Houses of Parliament. And the House of Lords Constitution Committee has objected to that on the ground that it opens the procedures to challenge by judicial review. And a lot of people would like that very much indeed. Um, I'll just finish because I don't want to go over things said before, 
as to what might follow if there were an outvote. I personally think whether there's an in or an outvote that a referendum on leaving the European Union will be extremely destabilising. It will destabilise an already fragile constitutional situation. But the problems that might arise, um, Damien picked up the first, um, uh, well, no, I'll go in a different order. I think the most problematic situation would be if Scotland voted to stay in and England voted out because that would reopen all the questions that were tackled during the Scottish um, referendum on independence as to whether um, it would have to apply to rejoin the EU and it would certainly uh, uh, open up a demand for a further constitutional referendum. It wouldn't be quite so complicated if Wales or Northern Ireland voted to stay in, (coughs) but in the case of Northern Ireland there would be political consequences in terms both of the Belfast Agreement and the British Irish, particularly the British Irish Council. I um, won't cover the implications for the UK because they've already been handled, except to say that there would be legal problems about dealing with the several thousand pieces of EU legislation which are currently part of UK law, but I think it could be done fairly easily with an act which preserved the status quo subject to exceptions. Um, And I'm sure that employment law would turn out to be an exception, although you could, of course, deal with it on an ad hoc basis. Um, Vested rights for EU citizens and UK citizens in the EU would be problematic. And finally, handling the complex treaty negotiations necessary if the UK wanted to seek or retain membership of international organisations. And that, I think, Joe, would be particularly complicated, dealing with the EU in, in, in the matter of the European arrest warrant. Carol, thanks so much for um, that really fascinating um, analysis of the terribly important uh, legal and constitutional questions that underlie the, the, this critical uh, moment that may be facing the UK. So now we turn it over to you. Uh, there is a roving mic somewhere, I'm sure. There it is. Um, can I ask you if you'd like to introduce yourself and where you're from? And please wait to speak until the microphone reaches you. Now we're going to bundle questions in groups of two or three. And the first hand I see is right at the very back. Yes, there's a a colleague here with a blue scarf just there. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Yeah, great panel, and thanks all for your contributions. Um, My name is Mareike Kleine, and I'm an associate professor of EU and international politics at the European Institute here at LSE. I think my my question is mainly for, for Damien, and I'm just wondering, Damien, how much wishful thinking there is actually behind what you said. I'm just wondering if the UK really managed to renegotiate the terms of its membership. What keeps Germany, Denmark, I don't know, Sweden, the Netherlands, any other country from then taking this as a cue, threatening exit and changing it right back? Right? The reason is probably that um, the UK threat of exit 
is much more credible. And it's not necessarily credible because of macroeconomic reasons. It's more credible, um, and here I get a little bit unpolitical science because the UK is essentially blackmailed by a couple of crazies, so to say. Right? Um, Backbenchers in the National Parliament. I'm trying to get as many people in as possible, so if you could move to the question really quickly. I'll try to keep it brief. There's Mm -hmm. a point to this. Um, Backbenchers in the National Parliament, Farages and uh, and Murdoch and so on and so forth. So um, I think it might be an illusion to think that what then comes out of the negotiation, it's going to be a more enlightened and democratic Europe rather than a more nationalistic, anti-immigrant Europe. Um, Finally... No, I got, forgot my final point. So, yes, so what may happen and would the next project look any different? Yes, um, gentleman here in a blue shirt. We'll take one more after this. Don, Donald Davidson. Um, well, the EU and democracy. I just want to point out that since 1992, with the Danish referendum in Maastricht, there have been several referendums which resulted in no vote, and of course, two, of course, in the Irish Republic. And, and, and so guess what? They've, they've just had another vote. And the, the European Constitution was voted down by the French and the Dutch in referendums. So it was quite clearly, it was repackaged as the Lisbon Treaty. And when the Lisbon Treaty was rejected by the Irish, then they had another vote. So um, I, mean, it's a, I think it's a fairly crucial point in dis- the whole discussions of the uh, EU and democracy. Thank you. And one more in this opening round. Yes, at the very front here, uh, gentlemen. There you go. Dr. Keith Postler, Staff, Department of Statistics and Methodology. Um, what are the opportunity costs? And um, I assume in that that uh, that subsumes uh, cost-benefit analysis, that the opportunity costs are wider than cost-benefit analysis. Thank you. So and that's for leaving the UK, leaving the EU. Thank you. So we have a question related to what might happen. Would we really get a better project? We have a question about the outcome of referendum. You know, will we seem to be going again? Is, is this going to finalise where we are? And then, you know, the cost benefit of this. Has anybody thought about this? What are the likely cost benefits of this? Jamie, let's start with you, and then maybe other panel members will come in. Calculations. Okay. Um, well, thanks for the questions. Very briefly, I won't tell them the order they're given, just to not... In relation to the gentleman's point about referenda, he's of course quite right uh, that the people have just been asked again until they get the right answer. There's an interesting thing, by the way, about the UK um, referendum when it, was, when it was held. Actually, after that referendum, which voted, uh, obviously, to stay in the, what was then the European Economic Community, between 78 and 86, you saw the biggest proportion of public opinion that was against the EC. If you looked at the opinion polls there, the UK public opinion was at its most virulently anti-EC, shortly after that referendum. And so I think it's too much to assume that these referenda uh, act as elixir one way or another for resolving these things. Um, Secondly, in relation to Marika's point, I I don't hold out any prospects for whether this will be more enlightened or not. I'll just say what my test would be. In relation to what has taken place already, uh, it's not... Well... David Cameron has said he wants treaty reform, which would mean not just, and secondary legislation, which would mean not just agreement of 27 national governments, but insofar as it would affect the EEA, Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, and agreement of the European Parliament. I think my own view is that's a little bit unrealistic in the time frame he's wanting. 
But he has, he has agreement on a number of things already at the level of secondary, secondary legislation institutional reform. So the Dutch parliament, for example, has pushed very str- as, as have the Danish and the Finnish, for much greater involvement of uh, national parliaments, both in agenda setting and vetoing commission proposals. One can argue about uh, the proposals for citizenship reform, whether they're more or less liberal, but the British government's position is pushing at an open door there. Now, in your relation to your point about, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see how other governments um, respond to any British proposals for, for treaty reform. Any government can propose it under the treaties. What happens to that is obviously a matter of politics afterwards. And certainly, the British government has annoyed other governments, considerably by assuming that only the British have anything they want to change. And this has annoyed nearly everybody. Uh, so, you, as the Greeks have discovered, it's a considerable feat to unite the EU, but the British and the Greeks both seem to be doing it in their own way. Um, lastly, on the opportunity costs, I'm a sh- um, most of the studies that have been done on exits from the EU make a lot of assumptions about both opportunity and restrictions, but most of them show there would be uh, economic losses to the UK. The Ones that don't rely on two things. They assume we're going to drastically deregulate, which is, in fact, most of them assume we deregulate completely, so we would have no uh, brakes in cars. Um, And they assume complete liberalisation that every other state in the world would want to sign a free trade agreement with us, which is a bit implausible because they haven't asked these other states. And we would get rid of all agricultural support. So I find... The ones who've, their assumptions are a little bit unrealistic. There have been studies on both sides. I would refer you to the House of Commons Libraries paper, which has the best range of those. I think the best study has actually been done by Biz, which suggests 3 to 4% loss of GDP. But of course, a lot of assumptions are made even into that. Great, thanks, Jamie. Before we move to our next round, I think, Carol, you want to come in on these questions? I just wanted to add that. Um, it's thought that the way to get things um, to make the negotiations Damien has been talked about is now in the council to form um, uh, groups of council members who will um, actually agree to get things passed down and indeed there was an example of that recently but I can't for the life of me remember what it was But I did want to say something about academic um, groups like this. I've been to an awful lot of academic meetings in which academics have said Farage and his gang of crazies, in inverted commas. And I do think that that is very unwise. I think we ought to look seriously. I don't think a gang of crazies can collect um, such a large percentage of the population um, saying that they will actually vote for it and that it represents some spirit around that we ought to take seriously. Thanks, Carol. Um, now, I think the Twitter sphere is alight and Connor is going to give us a question. Yes, I Thank you very much. I won't introduce myself because I'm a mere conduit for this in haste. And the question is, how would a precipitate EU exit affect 
Pacta sunt servanda generally. I think it's a question about the impact this would have on international law and would it shift what this and Hayes calls uh, law towards some kind of consent view of international law. So the question is about impact, if any, of a, of a speedy, uh, unthought-out, I guess, uh, withdrawal of the EU-UK. Great. Thank you, Connors, bringing in the international perspective. Let's take one more. Group those together if there's another question. Yes, at the very back. Many thanks, Philip Pech, also from, from the Law Department. I wanted to ask something that goes a little bit in the direction of my uh, colleague Marika. Um, talking about demo democratic deficit in the EU, I don't think this is a new debate. It started maybe also as an academic debate many, many years ago. And I think there is this kind of democratic deficit if you compare the EU with um, a good national system, a good national democratic system. The question is what is feasible on the international stage, and I think one needs also, to, uh, also needs to compare it to what is feasible in democratic terms in other international organizations, which is, I think, next to nothing in other organizations. So I think we have an extreme, uh, uh, a wonderful achievement here. My other uh, comment regarding democratic deficit is the following and relates uh, to the um, debate here in England and of course also to the debate in Greece. Isn't de democracy uh, a thing of information flow in two directions? Um, we are talking about the dem democratic deficit in the EU institutions which is kind of an institutional procedural question to some extent, to a big extent. But isn't the bigger democratic deficit what we are suffering from here in the UK, that the information people need to decide is in the first place not given to them? And this by the responsible those in charge, which are the politicians, and this only leaves the space to Murdoch and others to, uh, to be at the helm, at least as regards the information. Great, thank you. Um, yeah. Questions as to democratic deficit and the consequent impacts on international law. Uh, right. I think what I said in my uh, brief presentation relates to Connor's uh, question based on the Twitter and uh, also to the point about democratic deficit. And I think on Friday we had an event on TTIP. And that's just a good example when you compare an international regime where diplomats are negotiating a deal between themselves. And then I think we know that much about the TTIP only thanks to the European Union and the involvement of uh, the European Parliament, because otherwise we would know close to nothing about that. And that's where, you know, the talk about the, it's a transatlantic uh, free trade agreement between the US and the European Union. And part of that is to decide on the regulatory standards which would apply in that regime. And that also comprises, for example, GMOs, a big divide between Europe and the United States. Now, in Europe, you get this negotiated and debated in the European Parliament, and uh, you know quite a bit uh, from the negotiations in the Council because of the domestic parliament's involvement. You don't have this in international affairs. So to talk about democratic deficit is precisely what you want to compare to. Of course, it doesn't function as a state-based democracy, but if you want to look at the European Union as an international regime or the international organization that is quite advanced, and what I wanted to convey is it's advanced because it functions for so long and so well compared to any other international uh, regime. Thank you. Jill, you 
Yeah, um, well, thanks, Philip. I agree with your question, and I just wanted to say that it's kind of baffling, this phrase, the democratic deficit at EU level. Um, I don't know of a single state that doesn't have a democratic deficit. I certainly don't know of a state that has a surplus of democracy. (laughs) So as if you can measure this, right? And I think that the European Union, if it isn't already, it could be a laboratory for new methods of democracy and new methods of legitimacy. And it has already challenged nations, the member states, in that respect. And I think it can continue to challenge member states. So I don't, I agree with you. I think the language is bad um, and the solutions are better. I think there is another side to Jan's argument, and that is that things being debated at European level and with the European Parliament may actually preclude them being debated at national level. And some things such as GMOs um, felt very strongly um, against them, say, in Austria, and very strongly apparently for them in the United Kingdom. And they're not properly debated because they're covered by the European Union. So I'm not fond of the term democracy deficit, but maybe the two systems clash in certain ways. Damien, do you want to come in? Okay, just very briefly, in answer to the question that was articulated on Twitter, the EU would succeed to any agreements with third states, and this would be a challenge for the UK to renegotiate them if it wanted to. In, in answer to the question on democracy deficit, it's very well saying that the EU has more mechanisms than any international organisation, but it has more powers and it governs significant parts of people's lives in national territories. So one has to compare it a bit to national legislatures. And on that basis, there is la- less, uh, there's, there's more involvement by civil servants and less enge- citizen engagement than there is at a national level. Um, and that is why it compares badly when it is challenged, when, when there are conflicts between this and national laws. National citizens often feel very upset about this. On the public sphere, I think we have to be a little bit careful. There's a lot of research done on this by political scientists. They find actually the information is quite high on the EU now, and there's quite a lot of political contestation. However, the information is distorted in that national governments figure much more prominently in the reporting than central authorities do if it was just... So, say, for example, the federal authorities would do if one was just reporting in a purely German context, for example. And this tends to configure the reporting a little bit, how it's perceived. It's what the national government says about it or against it. And citizens are, of course, a little bit sceptical about that. Thank you. So, further questions or comments? <clears throat> yes, in the front here. Where is our mic? Hi, uh, Hugh Gardner. Um, I'm just wondering what the panel thinks uh, about the actual mechanism of a referendum, whether it would be dangerous to give the general public that power, considering it's such a complicated question. You know, it's, it covers legal aspects, it covers economic aspects, um, and it's very doubtful that they're going to put out enough information for people who have no experience of it to be able to uh, make a, a good decision on it. Great, thank you. So a profound question as to the the power of the public when it comes to these very big decisions. Let's take one or two more. Yes, over here. Sorry. Thanks. I'm uh, Arna Menon from King's College. I've I've heard two things this evening from the kind of pro-membership camp that worry me as arguments to be used in a campaign. The first is 
this claim that if only they had the information, they'd see the light and vote the right way. Uh, and that seems to me to be a, to crassly dismiss the fact that society is made up of winners and losers. And European integration has created winners and losers. Uh, some people have lost from globalization, from open markets, from free trade, from deindustrialization that comes with uh, free trade areas quite often. Uh, they don't feel adequately compensated for. And if you give them the information, they won't suddenly see the light. Uh, they'll still remain the losers. And I don't think the sort of the cosmopolitan elite that, that so sort of complacently argues in the case for EU membership gets that. The second argument is, is what I call the, the Timothy Garton Nash syndrome, which is, oh my God, these EU institutions are so clever and so unique and they're so much better than anything else we've ever devised before. Why can't people like them more? Uh, the reason people can't like them more is because in politics in general in Western Europe, and I mean both at the national and the EU level, there is an increasing sense of disconnect between rulers and ruled. And that sense of disconnect is greater between ruled at the national level and rulers at the EU level, according to most opinion polls. Uh, and, you know, the EU was an elite project, and it was an, an institutional system that was set up for regulatory activity. So there's absolutely no surprise that when it deals with hardcore matters of redistribution, as it is now, people doubt its legitimacy, because it's not a system that was set up for those sorts of tasks. And I think, again, this is something we, we ought to take more seriously. Uh, particularly those who want to argue a credible case for Britain staying in. Great, thank you. So two related issues here, the, the role of the public in referendum and this very wide question as to the EU and the disconnect between people and the EU. Joe, I think you wanted to come in. Well, just briefly, I think that's a good question about referendums and I'm not an expert on these things, right? But I, so I agree that if you're going to have a referendum at all, it has to be a very straightforward question and it's got to be a question... The, the question has to be on the principle, so either yes or no. Um, but that also goes to the other question we've had about referendums. Are they really, um, to what extent are they really about the issue? And to what extent are they about all sorts of other issues, right? And I think that, that they are also a referendum on whatever government is currently in charge and disaffected voters will not vote in favor of the, uh, the government's policy. Um, and it's often about national issues that get conflated with European Union issues. So the problem with these referendums is that their democratic credentials are slightly tainted by the fact that you know, people vote for their own reasons and not for the reasons that the government would like them to vote for. So that's what I have to say on Yeah, that. you were going to come in. Yeah, it uh, just relates to the point about if people knew more about the European Union, they would be perhaps more happy about what the European Union is doing. Now, of course, it creates winners and losers, and I think what people should get, and I, in my view they don't, is that, uh, in fact, in the light of the alternatives we have, if you want to get control over your life and become a winner, or at least not losing too much, then, at least as I see it, being a member of the European Union is the best option you may have. And in that respect, uh, in fact, it's great to debate on the British exit because it just enlightens this point that now you have in serious newspapers reports on what the alternatives for the UK would be, and it seems to me that uh, they do not suggest a viable alternative, as also uh, Damien did. So I think there must be some more enlightenment, but not in the, in the sense that... Uh, People just need to get explained how great the European Union is, but rather just to show them that if there is a chance for them to get better control of their lives and have better prospects, 
then it's a framework which gives them at least the chance. Damien. Uh, I agree very strongly with what Anand Menon said, and that, was really, uh, that, that assumption informed a little bit what I was talking about with democratic authority. Very briefly on what the gentleman uh, in the front said, the evidence is, because the Commission did this rather, uh, did the report into the referenda following the Constitutional Treaty, the evidence is that citizens are actually remarkably well informed about EU affairs by the uh, time of the uh, referenda. They might vote on slightly wider things that's just than what is in the uh, text, but voter ignorance is certainly not a big thing. That said, and in the case of the British referendum, it's difficult to see. And here I have some sympathy with Nigel Farage, how they're going to get a fair choice if it's held in 2017 for the simple reason it cannot be negotiated, agreed, and ratified so they know they have a proper deal in front of them by 2017. And that is a real problem. That has nothing to do with voter, the uh, collective intelligence of voters. It has to do with government preparation. And, the, I mean, the government has, has failed there woefully, in my view. Thanks, Damien. I'm conscious of people at the, on the balcony. Anybody up there with a question? We're not overlooking you? I, in fact, agree entirely with the, speakers, the speaker from King's College and would add about it that I think the disconnect comes about in present times particularly because we have theories of democracy, because we have referendum. So I always want to say referenda, um, and they suggest people power, but in fact there is no people power. So in the sense, maybe we might just as well have the Eurocrats in Brussels deciding everything for us as um, we have no real say. Can I just very briefly come in on this? Because I agree with you, the European Union is an elite project, but, but that doesn't mean that the effects have been confined to the elite. And, you know, I was struck in preparation for today that the European Union is a reality in, in, for, in, in, for many people in all uh, states, and actually in our department as well, right? Just look at the composition of our department. I mean, are we at the elite? But not on that level. But, you know, we're also... Well, okay... I know what you're going to say, but we're also just, well, you know... We're all elite in that sense. We're, I see us as workers, right? We're going about our daily job. And we have families, and some live abroad and have families abroad and, and commute um, uh, long distances to get here. And you can say, okay, that's an elite privilege, but it's also a necessity, and it's a reality. Whatever it is, it's there. I, I think what... Joe has neglected to say is uh, quite a few of us here will be out of a job depending on how the uh, referendum goes in a couple of years time. Some will leave voluntarily. <laughs> we have probably time for an, uh, our last round of questions. Let's see. Yes. Yeah, oh, quite a few here. So where's our mic? Oh, goodness me. Right. Let's, let's take, start with two and see where we go. So there's a gentleman here in the second row with a scarf and glasses. Oh, no, that's fine. Oh, let's give priority to the balcony. Yes, so there's a gentleman in the front with a striped shirt. There you go. We'll come back to you in, in just a second. Yes. Hi, uh, Alex Brody. Do you think there is such uh, apathy towards the European Union? Because people in the UK, they don't necessarily know who to get angry at. Because people, if you ask them on the streets, they wouldn't necessarily know who Jean-Claude Juncker is. So they get annoyed at the institution because they don't necessarily know the individual parts of the European Union, the, the politicians that make it up. Thank you. 
And we were starting there. Yes, was there a mic? There's a gentleman there with a scarf at the end of the row. Uh, thank you. Uh, I wanted to intervene simply to make a point about the democratic deficit. I was a member of the European Parliament for 15 years, and people were constantly bagging on about the democratic deficit at that time. When I was first elected in 1984, uh, the turnout at European elections was lamentably low, but it's got even lower since then, uh, in spite of uh, expansion and enlargement. The problem with the European Union in general is that the democratic deficit exists because the political parties in the member states prefer it that way. Uh, members of the European Parliament are not elected by the people. They're appointed on a, a list by each party mechanism, and that applies in the United Kingdom as well as other countries. Thank you. And let's take one more. There is a colleague in the very front row here with a, a green sweater. There we go. Thank you. Hello, Sebastian Corlett. I was at UCL. Um, my question is to Professor Harlow in relation to Article 50 of the right of withdrawal in relation to the Lisbon framework. How is that uh, worked out in practice um, if the United Kingdom were to, say, withdraw? How is Article 50 um, affected? Thank you. Great, thank you. So we have questions related to the democratic issue. How are people thinking? Do they understand the institutions? Who or what are they angry at? Very interesting question about the role of political parties in this, and in particular the European Parliament, and then the mechanism for withdrawal. Carol, would you like to start with that one? Uh, I think probably Damien can answer this better, but, but in a sense we don't know the answer to the question because so far nobody has done it. But what... Um, on paper um, happens is that the member state notifies the European Council of its intention and I, um, then the, an agreement is negotiated um, which I think is over a period of two years and um, after that um, the Council acting by qualified majority but without UK representation of course um, uh, decides on the terms and then passes it on to obtain the consent of the European Parliament. That sounds to me like a skeletal account and basically I have no further information to offer. Uh, only once has anybody left, any state left the European Union and that was so long ago that I didn't... Um, even think of speaking about it because it seemed to me to be completely um, out of kilter with what's happening today. It's fascinating and of course at the moment people are trying to work out is there, can there be a procedure linked to, to the euro area. Thanks Carol. Yes. Um, any panellists want to come in on these wider issues, perhaps on the European Parliament, on how the process for electing MEPs operates? Well I, just on the point that the MEP made, the former MEP, I think that's a very good one and I agree with you. The, democratic, the democracy deficit is by design of the national governments and you can see that from reading the various decisions by the German Constitutional Court where it's abundantly clear the more democratic the European Union becomes, the more of a problem it is for the German Constitution and that's the same for the member states as well. Mm -hmm. Damien, you're nodding. I'll bring you oh, in. Okay, very, 
very briefly just about two points. The gentleman raises the point about lists. I'm no fan of lists either. There was the rather notorious case of Carol Tung, who was demoted down the London Labour list uh, after raising some issues about EU competition law and Rupert Murdoch. And whatever, whether she was right or not to it, it didn't look good from a democratic point of view. The gentleman up in the balcony raises a very important right. He's absolutely right. There's a book by James Tilley and Sarah Hobbelt on this. It's not just you don't know who's identifiable and they don't have political salience. Uh, the confusion of responsibilities makes it very hard. So this tends to people just blaming the EU. Yeah. Uh, it's just a brief point in reaction to uh, how MEPs are uh, elected because uh, I'm not an expert on electoral systems in Europe, but to me it's rather an exception, the English electoral system, I mean the national elections, because in most countries what you get is list of candidates which are made by the parties. So in fact it's not that different as someone here in the UK can feel because in most European countries that's how national elections are also run. So... I think we need to look for the reasons for the low democratic legitimacy of the European Parliament somewhere else than just the way how MEPs get elected. I think we're definitely into our last round. Fantastic question so far. So you have the responsibility of possibly being the last one or two. So our roving microphone is ready to go. Yes, there's a hand there at this side of the room. I think it's a gentleman in a purple jumper, maybe? No, further back. Keep going, keep going. There we go. Yes, thank you. And so, uh, we'll, yes, yes, and if the mic can just travel into the centre and then we'll go to the balcony. But first, lady at the back, yes? Hi, um, I'm an exchange student. I'm originally from Greece. Uh, my question is mainly for Dr. Joe. Uh, you talked about British europhobia and uh, how um, the German Chancellor is um, seen as the head of the European Union. And um, I was wondering, as we have seen in the past, um, Germany having assumption of power and uh, Britain's position towards that, um, well, has been included in world wars, etc., has been to try to reduce that and have a larger role um, and power in Europe. Uh, why is it that we see now that they're actually trying to step away instead of trying to be included um, in the European setting. Great, thank you. And I think that the honour of the last question is going to the balcony. So our colleague, have you got the mic? There we go. Good evening. Uh, I'm Italian. I'm studying at King's. I wanted to make a question to Professor Chalmers, I think. Uh, is there something during his speech on the need of having more power to the national parliaments? For example, them, they could... Uh, uh, veto European laws or opt out from, from them. Uh, I was curious to know more about it. I mean, in which area do you think they might work? Might they also refer to the four freedoms or not? And of the system of European lawmaking is much difficult at the moment, do you think it, it would make it even more difficult and complicated? If it's really necessary, as there is a system like this in the Lisbon Treaty? Great. Thank you. So we're going to close on this, and perhaps our panelists might come in with further thoughts. But, Joe, I think the first one was to you. 
Yeah, about the invisibility of foreign policy, I think it's a great question. Look, the other day I was reading The uh, Venerable Guardian and I learned that Angelina Jolie Pitt was at the LSE. And the article continued that she was accompanied by William Hague, the Foreign Secretary. There's a slight problem with that. William Hague is not the Foreign Secretary. He's the former Foreign Secretary. And the current former secretary is Philip Hammond. But does anyone know that or does anyone care? And it seems to me that the British government's foreign policy is invisible for this reason. They have an invisible foreign secretary and they don't get invited or don't get involved when the French president and the German prime minister get together in Minsk. And I don't know why Varoufakis, why his first stop was in London to meet Osborne. I mean, what's Osborne going to say to him? He's not part of the Eurozone. So uh, I don't know the answer to your question. I think the Observer journalist on Sunday referred to Cameron as a dilettante when it comes to foreign policy. And on present evidence, I think I'd have to agree. And... Uh, so it's a, t- a complicated last question for the last two minutes, so I'll try and be very brief. What is it about national parliaments that might be agreeable, and um, is it not too complicated? Firstly, although on paper EU lawmaking looks very complicated, the reality is it's no longer very complicated. The Commission proposes something, and then they have a trilogue, which is a meeting in, uh, behind closed doors between a couple of civil, uh, council civil servants, a couple of Commission officials, and a few MEPs. And that's it. It's then adopted. Um, ratified by all the institutions afterwards. Now, my view is that having national national parliaments more engaged before that would improve the situation. The current situation with the yellow and red card system is a certain number have to say no. And that is actually quite... It's very difficult to get that number. Um, My view, as I understand lawmaking in any context, is parliaments have to say yes. This has always been my understanding of collective action. It would solve the collective action problem. I would think it would give it a sense of ownership and parliamentary responsibility. And it would also stop the trilogues, or at least open them up a bit, in that there would be domestic parliamentary hearings with sufficient time before them to actually engage civic society at domestic levels so we have a slightly better articulation of interests across the EU than just those who happen to know who to speak to in Brussels. Thanks, Damien. And it's, it's good, to, I think, to end on a positive note with a practical, functional um, process that could improve things. I won't even attempt to summarize the, the depth of questions and response from our panel. We are living in extraordinary times. There is no doubt about that. Um, much of what we do is speculation, but I think after an event like tonight, it is informed speculation. So I thank you very much for coming and for fantastic questions and comments. I thank in particular our panelists, Damien, Jan, Joe and Carol. There will be a podcast in due course. Thank you very much, and let's see what happens. Thank you.